Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at Genesis 12, starting in verse 10, and we're going to go through chapter 13, verse 4 today. If you have one of the, the Welcome Table Bibles, it's on page 9. Um, last week, we talked about the, the, the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, God's faithfulness to keep his promises. This week, we're going to see God's ability to keep his promises. Now, I, those two things sound really similar, right? And they are similar in a sense. But I think there's an important distinction that we can make today that will be helpful for us. To say that God is faithful to keep his promises um, speaks to God's commitment to do so, right? He's willing to do so. He desires to fulfill his promises to his people. To say that God is able to keep his promises speaks to his sovereign power to, to do so. His, his ability to fulfill them. We don't just need a God who wants to fulfill the promises that he made to us. We need a God who can fulfill the promises that he made to us, right? We need a God who will keep his promises. And in today's passage, we're going to see why our hope is tied not only to God's faithfulness, but also to his sovereignty. This is a shorter passage, so I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll jump in together. So starting in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, look, I, I know that you, what a beautiful woman, woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say you're my sister so it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Chapter 13, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock silver and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Lord, we, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would open our eyes here to see the beauty of the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Would you draw our hearts to you? Would you encourage us, equip us, train us, Rebuke us, correct us for your glory and our good. Amen. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, or, or sorry, 0 to 10, or 1 to 10, we'll just pick one, okay? 0 to 10. 0 being not at all and 10 being total trust, how would you rate your trust in what God is doing in your life right now? On a, on a scale of, of 0 to 10, how would you trust, or how would you rate your trust in what God is doing in your life right now? Same scale, how would you trust or, or rate how you trust 
what God is doing at Redeemer right now. One more time, same scale. How would you rate your trust in what God is doing in the world right now? Are those numbers the same? If I asked you that same question next week, would those numbers change? If I asked you that question last week, would they be different than they are now? I think the answer is yes. See, the strength of our faith, it it fluctuates, right? I mean, we just read it for our prayer time in Romans 7. Things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. So here's what that means. If our faith fluctuates, it makes a poor indicator of what God is doing and how well he's doing it. In our lives, in our church, in the world. But not even our own lapses of faith can thwart God's plans or promises, and we're going to see that this morning. So here's our big idea, okay? Because God is able to keep his promises, God is able to build our faith. Because God is able to keep his promises, God is able to build our faith. And because we are recipients of his promises, we should be growing in our faith. This will mean nothing to us if we just go, yeah, God's able and willing. That's great. If we don't respond to that and the truth that that we're going to see, nothing will change. So we're going to jump right back in and start with Genesis 12, 10 through 13. We're going to set the stage here. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister so that it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. Now, there's a big problem in these verses and it's not the famine in the land. It's Abram's response to the famine at first glance, his, his response makes good logical sense, but we need to understand this, makes, this does not make good spiritual sense, okay? Think about it with me. If you, if you go to your refrigerator, you open the doors, there's nothing in there. Then you go to your cabinets, you open the doors, there's nothing in there, no food. What do you do? You go to the store, right? You get food. Or maybe you ask your neighbor, I don't know. But you go look for food. That makes logical sense, right? I'm, we don't have any food, we're going to go hungry, we need to supply that. A severe famine in the land often meant a severe drought in the land, right? No water for the crops, no crops, no crops, no food, okay? In the land of Canaan, everything was dry, but if you go south to Egypt, Egypt has the Nile River, and the Nile River had enough water in it to to keep irrigating the land through even some of the toughest droughts in other parts of the area. And so there was food there. There was plenty for them to eat. When all the other countries were dried up, Egypt was lush and uh, ample with food supply. And so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because that's where the food was. Now, logically, that seems like a smart move, but we need to understand this. God never told him to go. God never told him to go. Let's not forget where this story is placed in the overall narrative of Abram and his relationship with God. We, we read last week, it, it comes immediately after this tremendous display of faith on Abram's part. 
At the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord spoke to Abram and told him to leave his land and his relatives and go to the land that the Lord would show him. What did Abram do? He left everything and he went, just as the Lord told him. And when he got to the land of Canaan and the Lord said, to your offspring I will give this land, Abram built an altar there and he worshiped the Lord, even though he had yet to see the fulfillment of God's promises because his wife was barren and because the Canaanites lived in the land. Abram was aware of his current realities, yet he trusted the Lord. On a scale of 1 to 10 in that story, his, his trust number would be 10. Okay? But apparently now that there's a famine in the land, Abram's faith was as scarce as the food supply. He didn't call on the name of the Lord. He didn't wait to hear from the Lord. He packed up and he went to Egypt where he knew there was food. Good logical sense, bad spiritual sense. So what, should he have just like shrugged off the severity of the famine as an act of faith? Eh, it's not that bad. All right, we'll get rain eventually. It's not faith to deny the reality of your circumstances. But Abram had an opportunity to seek the Lord in the midst of the famine, and yet he chose to take matters into his own hands. That never makes good spiritual sense. More times than we care to admit, we seem to let our circumstances determine our course of actions rather than the one who's sovereign and in control over our circumstances. We never need to deny the realities that we face or downplay their severity. In fact, we, actually, we need to acknowledge those things and be honest about those things. But in the midst of those things, we do need to see the bigger picture. And here it is. God rules over all things, over all things, according to his plan for our good and his glory. God rules over all things according to his plan for our good and his glory. When we try to take things into, matters into our own hands, we tend to just create more problems for ourselves. And everyone is shaking their head, yep. Abram's choice to go down to Egypt presented him with a new dilemma. He's going down there to keep his family alive by, by taking them to this reliable food source. But as he's going, he knows the power of the Egyptians and he begins to fear for his own life on the account of his wife, Sarai. Look at the phrases Abram uses in verses 11 and 12. He says, one time he says, I know. Twice he says, they will. He knew Sarai was beautiful and he convinced himself that when the Egyptians saw her beauty, they would kill him and they would take her from him. And instead of trusting in God's protection, Abram crafted a plan of deception that was driven by his fear of man and his desire for self-preservation. He anchored his safety and his well-being to Sarai instead of to the Lord. To what or to whom are you tempted to anchor your safety and well-being besides the Lord? If you were to echo Abram's words and say, it will go well with me because of you, who or what would the you be in that? 
Abram asked Sarai to say that she was his sister so it would go well for him because of her and his life would be spared on her account. Now, he's not asking her to lie completely. In, in a similar account in Genesis 20, we're going to see that uh, she really is his half-sister, but telling a half-truth and telling a full lie are no different. They're both deceptive and they're both sinful. The problem is, though, that Abram's deception paid off at least initially. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. Abram was was right. He was right. The Egyptians saw Sarai and they thought she was beautiful and they didn't kill him because nobody knew that she was really his wife. But once again, his problems were compounded because of his deception. I'm not sure he was planning on Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials also took note of Sarai's beauty and they told Pharaoh about her. So he took her from Abram and he added her into his harem of wives. And it's at this point that we need to see something. It's going to appear right here that God's promises of land and offspring and blessings that we saw in the beginning of chapter 12, that these things are in peril. It's going to look like there's no possible way they can come true now. Abram's actions pose a threat to their fulfillment. And from here on out, through the rest of the book of Genesis, we're going to see this theme over and over and over. And every narrative, someone in that narrative is going to do something that puts at least one of, if not all of God's promises to Abram in jeopardy. In fact, we're going to see that deception is going to be a prominent trait in Abram's family line. It's not good. It's going to look like the people are in control of whether or not God's promises come to pass. But in every single story we will read, including this one, God will intervene and he alone will show that he alone is the one who will bring his promises to fulfillment. And no one and nothing can stop him from doing that, including the recipients of the promises who act foolishly and sinfully when their faith falters. Genesis 12, 2, God told Abram, I will bless you and make your name great. Here in verse 16, we're told that Pharaoh treated Abram well because of Sarai, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. He's gaining wealth and notoriety, but we need to be careful right here. We need to be careful not to suggest that this is the blessing that God was referring to back in verse 2. Why? Because God never rewards our sin. God never rewards sin. In chapter 16, we'll meet a woman named Hagar. Hagar, however you say it. Depends on if you're from Wisconsin or not, I think. I don't know, sorry. We're going to meet Hagar. She's one of Sarai's Egyptian slaves. It specifically says that. She's Egyptian. And if you're familiar with the storyline, you know that Sarai will use Hagar. She will intervene. She will take matters into her own hands. And she will use Hagar to try to bring about God's promise of offspring. But it only complicates things further and causes more problems. Hagar is most likely one of the female slaves that Abram acquired here in verse 16. Egyptian. You see, it looks like success 
maybe on the outside, but it's only causing more problems down the road. We need to be careful not to assume that the accumulation of material things equals God's blessing in our lives. Sometimes God allows us to have worldly success because he plans to use it gracefully to expose our disobedience and our sin and draw us back to greater dependence upon him. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does God condone slavery or any other kind of sinful behavior, but he often reveals his grace through some of the most deplorable circumstances. Why? God is not rewarding sin. Hear this. He is redeeming sinners. He's redeeming sinners. That's the whole point of his promises. He works his sovereign grace into the messes that we create so that we might grow in our dependence upon him and in our confidence in him and give him the glory. He's not rewarding sin. He's redeeming sinners. We make a big mess. But we have a big God. And God uses everything to his own advantage. Sometimes the grace that we see comes in the form of a rebuke from the most unlikely of people. Look at verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife, take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. This is the first time in this narrative that we see God enter the picture. This is the first time God does something here. And what does he do? He strikes Pharaoh and his household with plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Abram told her to deceive Pharaoh so that it would go well for Abram because of her. Pharaoh treated Abram well because of her, but God struck Pharaoh because of her, and Pharaoh rebuked Abram because of her. Did you follow all of that? This is a good time for us to pause and consider the irony in this story. Something's going on here in the narrative that we need to pick up on. Abram was supposed to be the man of great faith. He was supposed to be the man of obedience and integrity, and yet he behaved like the deceiving serpent. Pharaoh was the unbeliever in the story who had no concern for God or God's promises, and yet when the Lord struck him in his household with plagues, he responded in integrity and obedience by returning Sarai back to Abram and calling Abram out on his deception. Abram tried to disguise the truth, the Pharaoh brought it out and upheld it. The one who had received God's promises was put to shame by the one who hadn't. Ouch. But that shame, it's a display of God's grace. It's a display of God's grace. The whole reason Abram wanted Sarai to, to, to uh, say that she was his sister was because he was afraid that the Egyptians would kill him if they knew she was Abram's wife. But when Pharaoh found out, the most powerful man in all of Egypt, when he found out he had been duped, what did he do? What didn't he do? He didn't kill him. He didn't kill him. Instead, he sent Abram away with Sarai and all they had, go, take everything you have and leave. Why didn't Pharaoh kill him? 
Because the Lord made promises to Abram. The Lord made promises to Abram. And because God's sovereign grace and power, no one and nothing can stop him from keeping these promises. Not Pharaoh, not Abram, not anyone. Not worldly power and wealth, not faulty faith, not anything. No one and nothing can stop God from keeping his promises. God didn't expose Abram's lack of faith so that God could nullify his promises to Abram. God exposed Abram's lack of faith to remind Abram of his ongoing need of God's grace, for grace from the promise-keeping God. The Lord allowed Abram to experience shame so that he could strengthen Abram's faith. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, and his, uh, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Lot's mentioned here because he's coming up in the next narrative. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built an altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Abram took his family down to Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land of Canaan and he was looking for the nearest food supply that could, um, that, that could sustain them. But because of his deception, now he's forced to leave the place of abundance and head back to the land of famine. This is grace. Why? Because now he's forced to depend on the God who made all the promises to him. He has no choice but to rely on the Lord and his provision. And where did God lead Abram? Back to the site where Abram had built the altar in the middle of the land of Canaan. And that, the land that was empty of food but full of promise. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now the text doesn't tell us when the famine ended or even how God provided for, uh, food for Abram and his family, but we don't need to wonder if God did that. If he provided what they need to survive. Psalm 33, 18 and 19 says, But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love, to rescue them from death and to keep them alive. In famine. Here in verse 4, it's clear that Abram was dependent upon God's faithful love when he called on the name of the Lord at the altar. We need to understand this is, this is big. Abram's faith was not what carried him through this situation in Egypt. You know how we go through things, hardships in life, and, and, and there's this self-comfort that we try to give and say, well, I still have my faith. Now, if you say that, I'm not here to knock that, okay? But I want us to understand just the subtle change here that we need to realize. Our faith is fickle. It wavers, it falters. It was not Abram's faith that carried him through this trial. It was God's sovereign power and grace. And as a result, Abram's faulty faith was strengthened. Abram's faith wavered when a trial came and he made decisions that were motivated by fear and that fear led to sinful actions that created compounding problems. But at no time in the midst of all of that did God abandon Abram or his promises to him. Great is thy faithfulness. This ought to give us a great deal 
of encouragement and hope. You see, the reality is that our faith is often on a sliding scale, right? You know this. Sometimes it feels like a 10, and then maybe like an hour later, it looks like a, a, a zero, right? Our circumstances change. Our outlook changes. We are a people that forget. Sometimes we're committed to trusting the Lord in the most difficult of circumstances. Sometimes we let fear and self-preservation dictate our decision-making, and we just end up making things worse for ourselves. But God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. His word tells us, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, this saying is trustworthy. There's no half-truth in here. This is a real full truth. Are you ready to hear it? For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's a good truth. God's promises are dependent upon God's own willingness and ability to keep them. And listen, he is both willing and able. He's both willing and able. The gospel's proof of that. Think about all of the things that were required for Jesus to come when he did. All the, all the events in history, everything has to line up perfectly for Jesus to come and do what he did, when he did, how he did, why he did. Think about all the prophecies that had to be fulfilled by his birth, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. That's a lot of promises that were made. A lot of promises. If God is not perfectly in control of all those details, then there's no guarantee that any of those promises can be kept, which means there's no guarantee that the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ could be kept. It all falls apart if God isn't in control. Have you ever thought about this? Think about how many times people tried to kill Jesus during his life on this earth. King Herod tried to kill him after he was born. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he, Satan brought him up to the temple and said, throw yourself off. Tried to get him to commit suicide. Synagogue leaders in Nazareth tried to throw him over a cliff, but he just walked right through him. Some Jews in Jerusalem tried to stone him after he said, before Abraham was, I am, when he's claiming to be God. Then they tried to stone him again a little while later after he said, I and the Father are one. He was a marked man. Every time, every time Jesus' life was threatened, the promise was seemingly in peril. But every time, every time, Jesus escaped death because the promise is secure. There's a recurring statement in the Gospel of John that says this, but, but his time had not yet come. Or maybe in your translation it says something like, but the hour had not yet arrived. And then we get to John 17, this beautiful, what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And you know how he starts it? Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him the authority 
over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. In John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. He's fulfilling the promise. Jesus received this command from his father because his father promised it back in Genesis 3.15. It's the verse we keep coming back to. It's the first time the gospel's preached. He's the serpent crusher. And God promised it back in Genesis 3.15 because he planned it before the creation of the world. And what God plans and promises, God does. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned it, so it will happen. This is why we can read of Abram's embarrassing failure in Genesis 12 and not lose hope. He's going to fail over and over He's creating more and more problems for himself and he's going to get deeper and deeper into them. Chapter 20, he's even going to repeat the same foolishness that we saw here. And yet in spite of all of that, God's promises to Abram will remain intact because God has sovereign grace for faulty faith. We need to know that God's grace is never in short supply. There's no such thing as a grace famine. And that means that we will never need to go anywhere else to look for what we need. Christ was killed so that we could live. Our lives are spared on his account. And because we are recipients of this salvation through grace, we can honestly say fully in truth that Christ is now our brother and we are co-heirs with him. And we can know that our heavenly father will treat us well because of him. That doesn't mean we'll have a life of prosperity. In fact, we're promised basically the opposite. Jesus says we'll have trouble in this world. Paul tells us anybody who wants to follow Jesus will be persecuted. What it does mean is that we'll have a life full of sovereign grace for our faulty faith. It means that when we fail over and over, even when we repeat the same foolishness, God's promises to us in Christ will always remain intact. But listen, it's the wrong application if we think that then it doesn't matter what we do or how we live. There's a difference between having an unbelieving heart and having a heart 
that has been changed by Christ, but also wrestles with unbelief at times. Wrestles with being a zero on the trust scale. God's grace not only makes us able to follow his commands, a.k.a. by the indwelling spirit that he's given to us, but listen, his grace also makes us willing. It also makes us willing. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. God makes us able and willing. If you have an unbelieving heart, if you deny your need for Christ, then I want to ask you to consider this question this morning. Have you found someone or something to place your trust in that has never failed you? I can tell you the answer is no. If you place your trust in anyone or anything else besides Jesus Christ, you will end up in a famine of hope. And you'll run to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And each one of those things will run dry. Jesus, the Son of God, the Redeemer, He is the only one who will never fail you and He proved that by laying His own life down on His own accord, doing that on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and by taking His life back up again through His resurrection in order to give eternal life to all who turn from their sin and trust in Him. So here's the other question. Will you do that this morning? Will you turn from your sin and trust in him? There's nothing else out there that can compare. If your heart's been changed by Christ, but you wrestle with trusting him at, at times, listen, you're in good company with Abram, with me, with every other believer. Do you want to grow in faith? Then don't focus on your faith. Focus on his grace. Fix your eyes not on your faith itself. Fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of it, Jesus Christ, the promised serpent crusher. Keep growing in his grace because there are promises that have yet to be fulfilled. You know this. And they will be fulfilled. Christ is going to return and he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet once and for all. And we who have been redeemed by him, we will spend eternity with him marveling at the immeasurable riches of his sovereign grace to us. Because God is able to keep his promises, God is able to build our faith. And because we are recipients of his promises, we should be growing in our faith. So let's be people marked by growth because we're marked by grace. Let's be obedient to God's commands because he's given us the desire and the ability to do so. And, and when we waver, when, not if, when, when we fail, let's call on the name of the Lord whose sovereign grace is never in short supply for our faulty faith. It's good that God is willing. It's amazing that God is able Amen. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have 
planned from the very beginning, from before the beginning, to give us everything we need to draw us to you in complete dependence, complete confidence that we can know you and be with you forever. Thank you for your word that is the full truth, not disguised in any way, that leads us to Jesus Christ and his beauty. I pray today that we would see that beauty and run to him. Amen.